Welcome to 20 Minute Health Talk. My name is Rob Hoyle. For our last show of the year, we look back on Northwell Health's top five innovations of 2022. My co-host Sandra Lindsay and the podcast team have spent the last few weeks catching up with researchers spearheading some exciting studies. Sandra? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just really happy that we're highlighting their work. They're usually, you know, behind the scenes in their lab doing their thing. So um, I think it's very, very important that we highlight what they do every chance we get. And we're talking about the Northwell Health's top five innovations of 2022. And it's so amazing what our researchers have been able to accomplish. 2,500 plus research papers in peer review journals. Rob, I, I couldn't believe when I saw that stat. And I'm, I'm just going to repeat that. 2,500 studies published in peer review journals. Kudos to our researchers at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. That is just incredible. Uh, and many of those researchers have been on the podcast before. So it's great to take another look at some of these studies to get a little update uh, for instance, earlier this year, I spoke with Dr. Christine Metz on the podcast about this ongoing study of endometriosis. It's called the, the ROSE study, which stands for Research Outsmarts Endometriosis. And the goal is to develop a non-invasive diagnostic tool. And Sandra, you spoke with her about the results of their trial, which were recently published, one of those 2,500s that we just mentioned. You know, Rob, she's incredible. I learned so much because I've had you know, colleagues of mine who suffer from endometriosis. Her, her research is really encouraging for women. We also spoke with researchers who made advances in the areas of diabetes, pancreatic cancer, lupus, and COVID-19. Next week, we'll have the top five moments of 2022. But now kicking off our list of the top five innovations is an exciting new approach to treating pancreatic cancer, organoids. So what is an organoid? An organoid is essentially growing a tumor um, outside of the patient. That was Dr. Matthew Weiss, professor in the Institute of Cancer Research at the Feinstein Institutes and the deputy physician in chief and surgical director in the Cancer Institute at Northwell Health. He is investigating if organoids could help physicians predict how a patient would respond to chemotherapy before putting the patient through the trouble and discomfort of receiving it. You take the tumor itself um, and you take a piece of it and you essentially give it all the growth factors that it needs to grow in a Petri dish. And the idea is that you can then utilize that to do different testing directly on the patient's cancer. There are few meaningful treatments for pancreatic cancer, a disease that is often found late. Only 7% of patients survive five years past their diagnosis. No two pancreatic cancers are the same. So we have no way of predicting what they're going to respond to and how they're going to respond. Putting patients on the correct course right away is critical. Change isn't happening fast enough. Um, you know, I operated on a, on a young woman yesterday who had unresectable pancreatic cancer. Um, she's 59. She's going to die of her disease unless we can find an answer in the next six months to a year. This, Dr. Weiss hopes, is where organoids can come into play. If we could do both genomic sequencing to predict what you'll respond to, and we could do pharmacotyping and actually test different chemotherapeutic agents against your tumor, then we could utilize that information to decide which chemotherapy you're going to get. Organoids were first described in 2015 by Dr. Dave Tuvison, the director of the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Cancer Center and the chief scientist for the Luskarten Foundation. 
Dave Tuvison is is both a national and really an international leader in terms of organoid development. He and Dr. Weiss teamed up on the study that tested how well pancreatic cancer organoids were able to grow from cells taken from patients, as well as to see how organoids responded to different chemotherapies. They examined 136 tumor samples from an ethnically diverse pool of 117 patients with pancreatic cancer and recently shared the results of their trial. We had a success rate of, of developing these organoids in about 70 to 75 percent of, of cases. The study also showed promise in terms of organoids' power to predict. We wanted to look at whether what we found when we removed the tumors in terms of response rates correlated with what the organoid had predicted would patients respond or not. So, so that was the, you know, the, the final cohort was actually about 21 patients that, that, that we studied that underwent surgical resection that had received upfront chemotherapy. And we found that we could pretty accurately predict whether they were going to respond based upon the original um, organoid development. The findings suggest that trying chemotherapies against organoids may be a viable way to help oncologists tailor more precise, personalized treatments for patients. Before you can utilize the organoid data to make clinical decisions, we need a little bit more information on the accuracy of those organoids. Other trials underway, including a multi-center study incorporating the Northwell Health Cancer Institute and Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory called PASS-01, should further that knowledge. What you're seeing is that all the science that's been done is starting to build on each other, and, and, and I think the improvements are exponential. And continue to move the needle against pancreatic cancer. For our next innovation, we spoke with Dr. Richard Fury, Chief of Northwell Health, Division of Rheumatology, and Professor in the Institute of Molecular Medicine at the Feinstein Institutes. In 2022, he led a study evaluating the safety and efficacy of an experimental lupus drug that shows potential to improve quality of life for the several hundred thousand Americans living with this autoimmune disease. Lupus is the prototypic autoimmune disease. And this is a situation where the immune system goes a little haywire and starts attacking the body instead of exclusively providing protection against invading viruses and bacteria. Lupus can cause a wide range of symptoms from rash, to chronic pain and organ failure. There is no cure, but over the last few decades, new treatments known as biologics have overcome the excessive activity of the immune system in lupus patients. And scientists at Northwell and the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research have had a hand in developing some of these game-changing treatments. Our foray into the development of novel therapies for lupus started in the early 1990s. In 2011, we had our first drug approved, and it was history-making because it was the first drug approved for lupus via the route of a randomized controlled trial. The drug Dr. Fury referenced, Benlista, is now FDA-approved to treat lupus nephritis, the type of lupus that affects the kidneys. It is a monoclonal antibody, meaning you can specifically target a cell type or a protein that you think is doing harm and adding to the pathogenesis of the disease. 
Now they're fine-tuning a new monoclonal antibody called lidifilimab that researchers say has major potential. So we did a phase one study, a very small study of 12 patients showed that it had major biologic effects in shutting down the synthesis of these pro-inflammatory molecules. That led to two phase two studies known as the LILAC studies. Dr. Fury was an author on both, but the global principal investigator on part A, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study, which set out to evaluate the safety and efficacy of lidifilimab on lupus globally. We focused on arthritis, but we also looked at skin disease, and then we looked at lupus in general. Dr. Fury and colleagues tracked the patients for six months and found that participants who received the drug experienced a greater improvement in arthritis compared to the group getting placebo injections. They were both successful studies and they were published in the New England Journal. Now, a phase three study is underway. Phase three focusing on large populations of patients around the world to see if, in fact, the phase two results are replicated. And if they are, then we'll have yet another drug approved by the FDA for lupus. And with that potential, Dr. Fury says the ultimate goal is to improve quality of life and further reduce morbidity and mortality from the disease. Still in the modern era, we're losing close to 20% of our lupus patients over a 15-year period. If you go back to pre-1948, the survival for a lupus patient was about 50% at seven years. Dr. Fury says the goal is to get survivorship to 100%. The future is certainly brighter for our patients with lupus as a result of better understanding of the immune system, these targeted therapies. We still want to get that, that curve perfectly flat at 100%. And I think we'll eventually get there. Moving on to our next innovation, before the advent of COVID vaccines and other key therapeutics, researchers all over the world raced to develop treatments for the novel coronavirus. At Northwell Health, Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research and Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, scientists turned their sights toward famotidine, the active ingredient in a common over-the-counter heartburn medication, Pepsid, with anti-inflammatory potential. Inflammation-fueled COVID-19 symptoms. Might a high dose of famotidine, they wondered, quiet them down? We found that um, famotidine may help patients recover sooner as they have sustained inflammation because of COVID-19 um, to essentially alleviate this inflammation early and make patients feel better sooner. That was Dr. Tobias Janowitz, principal investigator of the phase two clinical trial of 55 unvaccinated patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. Launched in July 2021, participants took the medication orally three times a day, albeit at a much higher dose than the -the over-the-counter heartburn drug. We delivered 80 milligrams three times daily as a capsule and rather than 20 milligrams once to twice daily. In this randomized outpatient study published in early 2022 in the journal Gut, 28 participants received placebo and 27 received famotidine. These are preliminary results. This is not a definitive study and further studies are necessary. But we demonstrated this both by looking at patient reported outcome measures, 
So asking patients, how do you feel on a daily basis across a spectrum of symptoms and tracking how their symptoms resolved. Patients experienced better resolution of 14 out of 16 symptoms, including their ease of breathing, chest congestion, cough, and abdominal pain. We think that famotidin works by essentially not pushing back against the virus, but by helping the body lower the inflammation that is a consequence of the virus. The goal of the study was twofold, to evaluate the effectiveness of a high dose of famotidine against COVID, as well as to test the executability of a fully remote trial. On both counts, Dr. Janowitz says results were promising. When we planned the study, there were no vaccines available. There were no treatments available. And this was a very contagious disease with potentially grievous outcome to patients. So we came up with a paradigm where we would essentially enroll patients remotely and then take the study medication and the study equipment to their place of residence. Enrollees were mailed a cellular activated Apple iPad, Bluetooth-enabled scale, thermometer, fitness tracker, spirometer, and a pulse oximeter. Enrollees used the equipment at home, and a representative from Northwell Home Lab would visit to draw blood and swab their noses to test for COVID-19. And we tracked the inflammation in their blood using specific markers of inflammation and seeing how those markers were settling down slightly sooner when patients were taking famotidine compared to when they were taking placebo. Moving the trial fully remote removed common barriers to entry, expanding the pool of patients that could participate. This study, Dr. Janowitz said, is one contributor to shifting the paradigm of how clinical trials are delivered. We are not the only people to think about this. This is a national agenda, and the NIH is in encouraging people to think about decentralized trials. And I think what is important is we were able to do this to collect the data deeply, analyze it, write up the results and publish them in a sort of sum total of 18 months from the conception of the study to the report of the results. And I think that's a really important sort of benchmark and an early contribution to delivering um, this type of clinical study so that others can learn from the things that went well and from the challenges that we encountered. Nowadays, most patients are vaccinated. However, the new virus variants still cause systemic illness through inflammation in vaccinated patients. Therefore, Dr. Janowitz says further clinical research into famotidine's effect on the whole body's response to the virus that causes COVID-19 are needed and underway. Another fully remote trial is improving our understanding of endometriosis, which causes cells from the lining of the uterus to grow outside of the womb. It often causes excruciating pain as well as infertility and affects one in 10 women of reproductive age. It's also hard to diagnose, says women's health researcher, Dr. Christine Metz. Currently, there is only one definitive diagnostic for endometriosis, and it is laparoscopic surgery. Many put off the procedure. We have many people in our study that claim that they waited, you know, six years, 10 years, 12 years. I've even heard 20 years. And that's really our big incentive to identify ways of screening people much earlier uh, without an invasive procedure. Six years ago, Dr. Metz and her colleague, Dr. Peter Gregerson, had a novel idea. Could looking at women's menstrual blood 
also called effluent, be a way to identify women with the condition? It is really an undiscovered, understudied biological specimen with very little known other than what some of the cells are that comprise menstrual effluent. From that idea came the ROSE study, which stands for Research Outsmarts Endometriosis. Just as the researchers hoped, the latest data out of this ongoing research are showing key differences between the menstrual blood of women with endometriosis and those without it. So the ROSE study has collected uh, samples from menstruators across all of North America, uh, including Canada. Um, And once they're signed up, a uh, research coordinator actually sends a menstrual collection kit with very detailed instructions to their home via mail. In a new study, ROSE2, which is recruiting now, Dr. Metz and her colleagues hope to learn whether these biomarkers can predict endometriosis in women who are experiencing pain or other symptoms suggestive of the condition, but who haven't yet received a diagnosis. And we're collecting a menstrual blood sample prior to their surgery and then finding out what the um, laparoscopic surgeon discovers, whether they have endometriosis or they don't, to see the predictive value of our approach. And that's really exciting. Establishing a link between the markers and endometriosis could bring the ROSE team one step closer to their goal of developing a non-invasive diagnostic test for the condition. So our vision in 10 years is um, pretty wild. We actually believe that a menstrual effluent sample would be part of a regular GYN annual visit for all patients. And we would analyze that sample for all aspects of uterine health, including endometriosis. Dr. Metz says they hope to complete the ROSE-2 study within the next year and then submit those results to the FDA. And then from there, we would have to do a much larger clinical study um, to demonstrate, in fact, in a larger population that we see similar results. In addition to its potential for endometriosis, Dr. Metz believes this research could lead to tests for other uterine conditions as well. We see it as a very global tool that will um, explode in usage um, for clinical understanding of uterine health. Rounding out our list of top innovations of 2022, we take a look at a brand new approach to treating diabetes using ultrasound, an innovation that could transform the way diabetes is addressed. Currently, blood sugar tests, insulin injections, and drugs like metformin that address the symptoms of diabetes have been management mainstays. For the past six years, GE Research has been honing a novel, non-invasive ultrasound technique to stimulate specific neural pathways with organs associated with disease including the liver, says Sangeeta Chavan, a Feinstein Institute's bioelectronic medicine researcher. 
liver plays an important role in uh, glucose homeostasis. And that's why we targeted the liver. Last year, a GE research-led team that included scientists from the Feinstein Institutes like Dr. Chauvin showed that focused ultrasound therapy may be able to prevent or reverse the onset of diabetes. We have found a non-invasive way to regulate glucose levels in uh, diabetic condition. In the study, researchers from GE, Feinstein, UCLA, Samueli School of Engineering, Yale School of Medicine, and Albany Medical College used three different preclinical model systems to study the effects of ultrasound stimulation on blood glucose levels, nerve activity, and other key changes at the cellular level. The results showed that stimulating the livers of hyperglycemic animals with ultrasound stabilized blood sugar levels. The beauty of this particular technique is the stimulation is only focused on the liver. And that also specifically in that one particular structure in the liver. So we do not affect any other organs. This research, supported in part by the federal government's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, opens new avenues of using ultrasound stimulation and bioelectronic medicine as a therapy for diabetes and other metabolic diseases that affect millions worldwide. So if we can develop this technology, we can definitely develop devices to that can target liver tissue using ultrasound energy and regulate glucose level as well as type 2 diabetes conditions in these patients. As we close out 2022, we're grateful for our frontline healthcare workers, scientists, patients, and participants for their courage and heroism. They really are heroes, Sandra. Absolutely, Rob. If we don't have participants, we really don't have research. And I like the way that the researchers are making it easier to get participants. Yes. Because oftentimes, you know, get into a site or um, just everything mm-hmm. that they have to do to participate and having um, the ability to participate from home just removes that that barrier. Yeah. And technology is so helpful in that, you know, how people can be monitored remotely and um, and technology is only going to improve and, and become more available. So fantastic. I am very optimistic and I can't wait to see what's to come in 2023. And this is our last show of 2022. It's been a great year. And for our first show of 2023, we'll revisit some of the top moments of the past year. And what a year it was. There was so many great moments. And, you know, there's there's so many to talk about, but we're going to narrow that down to five. We have so many phenomenal moments to celebrate. It's, it's really hard, Rob, to narrow it down to five. We could do top 50 easily. <laughs> yeah. And, and that'll be an exciting episode. Looking forward to that. And I just want to thank the entire 20 minute health talk team for all their work and, and for these podcasts and getting information out to people. Um, just such a great team. And it's so great to be co-hosting with you. Likewise, Rob. Thank you. For Sandra Lindsay, I'm Rob Hoyle. And on behalf of the entire team at 20 minute health talk, we wish you a happy and healthy new year. Have a great 2023 and stay safe. <laughs>